Turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we have been looking up close at the life of Abraham. God made some some phenomenal, incredible promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed those promises. And so as we see Abraham live according to the promises God has made, we see an example of living by faith. Living by faith is when you believe the promises of God and you line your life up accordingly. You live accordingly. And Abraham is an example of someone that believed the promises of God and lined his life up accordingly. He said, wait, what promises did God make to Abraham? Well, God promised that he was going to give Abraham and his wife Sarah a son, and through their son he would give uh, them many and mighty descendants, and through his lineage God would grow a great nation. And he also promised Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to give you land in which your, your descendants can live. And he also promised that through your descendants I'm going to bless all the people's On the face of the earth. Now, we know by looking back from our vantage point that that great nation that came from Abraham's descendants is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And we know that through the Jewish people came a Messiah named Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. And so now, because Jesus died on the cross, because he rose from the grave, because he paid for our sins, if anyone from any language, any nation, any background, if anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they are blessed with salvation. So that goes back to the Genesis 12 promise. Through your descendants will all the peoples of the earth be blessed. The potential for blessing for everyone is there because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And so those are the great promises that God made to Abraham. And Abraham believe those promises. As a matter of fact, we saw last week that, that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness in Genesis chapter 15. Very important theological chapter. But this week, I want to talk to you for a, a bit about the danger of doubt. The danger of doubt. And I want to begin by posing and then answering this question because, again, we're looking at Abraham's life up close and personal. And by the way, one of the things I love about the Bible is there are some heroes of the faith that we see in the pages of Scripture, but the Bible is very honest about these heroes. There's only one perfect hero in the Bible. His name is Jesus, right? The other heroes of the faith, even though they modeled some things that we can emulate and we can be inspired by, had some had some shortcomings, had some failures, had some things that we can learn from. And and Abraham is one of those men. He's a hero of the faith. He's he's Father Abraham. And yet, we see him struggling at certain times in his life. And in chapter 16, we see Abraham struggling with doubt. So here's the question. Can godly people struggle with doubts? They have the Word of God. They have the promises of God related to salvation, eternity, life, all these wonderful promises. Can godly people waver? Can can godly people be plagued with doubts, perhaps nagging doubts somewhere in their life? 
And the answer from God's word is yes. Abraham was a man of faith. As a matter of fact, his faith saved him in Genesis 15. He, he believed God. It was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Wonderful, wonderful verse, Genesis 15, 6. But here in chapter 16, we see that Abraham and his wife Sarah uh, grow weary of waiting for God to fulfill his promise, and so they take matters into their own hands. In other words, they doubted that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so, guess what? If Abraham can doubt, doubt is possible for you too. And let me tell you another hero in the Bible that, 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 that struggled with doubt. His name was John the Baptist. You know that John the Baptist had some struggles with doubt? Turn to, real quickly to Matthew chapter 11. The first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11. I want to show you this. It's such a powerful passage. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison, where was he? Where was he? In prison. Did you know that sometimes changing circumstances can affect your emotional condition, which can cause you to have spiritual doubts? Do you know that? He's in prison. So he heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, why in the world was John the Baptist saying that? Because earlier in his ministry, when Jesus Christ walked up as he was preaching in the, the wilderness, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said about Jesus that, that Jesus must increase and he, John, must decrease. John the Baptist said about Jesus that I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals. I mean, John had strong faith in Christ, a great preacher of Jesus Christ, he, the, the forerunner of Christ promised in the Old Testament. And here he's saying, are, are you really the, the one? Are you really the Christ, the one promised from God in the Old Testament? So John, this great prophet of God, is in prison and he's struggling, he's in emotional turmoil, and he has some doubt. So what does Jesus do? Jesus answered them, I love this, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor of good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. She says, go report to John what you see. He deals gently with John. Tell, remind him of the, the truths that you see in my ministry. Everywhere I go, lives are transformed. Tell John about that and remind him... Blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. Blessed is the one who builds his life upon me. Just a gentle reminder. And you say, well, did John's spiritual doubts about the veracity of Jesus being the Messiah, did they disqualify him from being used by God? Well, look what he says next. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he 
of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? So, so Jesus reminds them of the powerful ministry that John had. And instead of, of crushing John in the midst of his emotional turmoil, his spiritual doubts, he, he reminds him of some things, he encourages him, and he reminds the crowd that John was a man to be held in honor because of his service to the Lord. But do you see here that John the Baptist struggled? Abraham, Father Abraham, struggled. So if Abraham struggled and John the Baptist struggled and David struggled and Peter struggled and I could go on and on and on, Moses struggled, don't you think it's possible that we could struggle? That we might be plagued with doubt? The answer is yes, So we want to understand what doubt is all about. That rhymes. I didn't mean for it to rhyme, but that sounded pretty cool. We want to understand what doubt is all about. And then we want to understand how we can live in a way so as to put away doubt when it rears its ugly head in our lives. We want to be able to deal with doubt. And so let me give you three thoughts about doubt. Going back to Genesis chapter 16 and 17 that I... Trust will be an encouragement to you. Genesis chapter 16. Let's talk about the origin of doubt. If you have your notes there, number one, the origin of doubt. Where does doubt come from? Where does it arise from? Well, first of all, doubts can arise during times of waiting. Doubts can arise during times of waiting. Look what it says back in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, his servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So what's happening here? God said, Abram, Sarai, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to grow through your son a great nation with many descendants. But Abram and Sarai were getting older and older and older, way past childbearing age, and they start saying, there's no way this is going to happen. And they waited and they waited, and they waited, and they got impatient, and they took matters into their own hands. As they struggled with doubting God's promise, they took matters into their own hands, and it got them into all sorts of trouble. More on that later. But doubts can arise during times of waiting. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. Ten years. The, the, the writer here, Moses, is, has been instructed by God to let us know that you're talking about years they had waited for the fulfillment of God's promise and had not seen it come to fruition. And so years had passed, and they're impatient, and they're doubting, and they're wondering, and they say, if you're going to have a lot of descendants, Abram, we've got to take matters into our own hands. Here's my maidservant, Hagar. Maybe she can give you a child. That's 
where their doubts arose. Doubts can arise during times of waiting. I told you in my sermon on Sunday as we looked at Habakkuk that God's not always on our timetable, right? And that's, that's really the hard part for most of us because when we're in a... We're in an uncomfortable situation or a desperate situation or a painful situation or a trying situation. We just want it to stop. We want it to be over with as quickly as possible, right? And so as quick as it can happen, God, I want this over with. If we're times of doubt, we want to see something come to fruition in our life, something we're praying for. We want it to happen now. But God's timetable is not our timetable. And in those moments of waiting, we can grow spiritually impatient. And when we grow spiritually impatient, we can begin to doubt God. Doubt his promises. Doubt his goodness. Doubt that he's going to come through. Doubt that he cares. Doubt his character. This often happens during times of waiting. So be careful about, about times of spiritual impatience. Because those times can give birth to doubt in your life. Secondly, doubts can arise when you listen to the wrong voice. Doubts can arise when you listen to the wrong voice. Look what it says in Genesis 16, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Here it is. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Whose voice should Abram have been listening to? The voice of God. As a matter of fact, he had heard God's voice. Genesis 15, God took him outside, remember? God spoke to him. He said, Abram, look up into the stars. Can you count them? The answer, of course, is no. You can't count all the stars in the sky. And he said, your descendants will be like those stars, innumerable. You won't be able to count them. That's how... How mighty of a nation I'm going to form from your descendants. God had spoken to him, but Abram somewhere put on the shelf in his mind and heart the voice of God, the word of God, and he listened to the wrong voice. Did you know that listening to the wrong voice can get you in all sorts of trouble? Did you know that? People that, that are not walking with God can, can speak to you and lead you astray and cause you to do things that are... Foolish. The devil loves to whisper lies and falsehoods in our ear to try to get us to to walk away from God, to walk away from the goodness and the character and the promises of God. And if if we ever find ourselves in our lives listening to the wrong voices, we'll get into trouble. That's why it's so very important that we have a regular, daily, systematic intake of the entire counsel of God. It's so important that we are exposing ourselves to the word of God day after day after day after day. Because when you're exposing yourself to the word of God, you're getting the right voice. You're getting truth with no mixture of error, correct? But what do we do? We, we go home from church and we put our Bibles on the shelf and we let all these other voices begin to speak into our life. We let the voice of, you know, political pundits speak into our life or stars in the entertainment industry speak into our life or musicians, we let them speak into our life. And, and we're letting all these, these ungodly worldviews shape us while our Bible's sitting over there on the shelf. No wonder we do stupid things. 
No wonder we struggle with doubts, right? No wonder we struggle with our faith when we're not exposing ourselves to the right voice. The unchanging, infallible word of God. When Abraham laid aside the word of God and listened to the voice of Sarai, he got in all sorts of trouble. So that can lead to doubt. Doubts can arise when you listen to the wrong voice. Now let me just give you a positive example. If someone is giving you wise biblical counsel, their counsel is from the Word of God, then you ought to heed that and listen to that counsel. God can speak to us through other people. He can, he can use other people in our life to lead us in the right direction. So just be aware of that. Alan Ross writes, Sarah's solution to the problem of not having a child incorporated social customs of the day. This is interesting. As a means of fulfilling the promise. Legal customs made it clear that a barren wife could give her maid to her husband as a wife and that a son born of that union could be the heir if the husband ever declared him to be so. Sarah's plan then was unobjectionable from the custom and law of the ancient Near East. It would seem to all concerned a reasonable opinion for the divine plan to follow. So Sarah here thinks she's got a good plan based upon what everyone around her was doing. That's what you do in the Near East. If, if you're barren and you can't give your, your husband a child, then you give him your maidservant. And once she has a child, then he declares him a, a child in the household and everything's taken care of. There's a, a legal descendant. But that wasn't God's plan. God said he was going to give Abram and Sarah a biological descendant. And through that descendant, he would grow a great nation. And so Sarah was listening, listening to the social mores of her time. She was just blending in with her surroundings. So here's my question for you. Do you find yourself just kind of blending in with your surroundings in terms of the way you think, the way you talk, the way you live, the way you believe, your values? Or are you countercultural in that the Word of God is your final authority for what you believe and what you do. We need to listen to the right voice. So that's the origin of doubt. Doubts can arise during times of waiting. Doubts can arise when you listen to the wrong voice. Here's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see the outcome of doubt. The outcome of doubt. What happens when we struggle with spiritual doubts? When we doubt, we are tempted... We are tempted to take matters into our own hands. When we doubt, we are tempted to take matters into our own hands. Look what it says in verse 2. Abram, or chapter 16, verse 2. Sarah said, Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Maybe that I shall obtain children by her. Look down in verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And so uh, Sarah has this plan. She sends Hagar into Abram. And uh, we find that Hagar is with child by Abram. And when that happens, Sarah gets upset. We see family dysfunction here. Because they took matters in their own hands. And, and we're going to see that dysfunction play itself out through the patriarchs. You think your family has problems? The patriarchs had problems. 
And we're going to see the problems that the patriarchs had as these pages unfold. And so, what, what, what's going on here? What, what's happening? Abram and Sarai take matters, they're tend to take matters into their own hands. How many of you ever found yourself praying about something? You're praying for God to do something, work, address an issue, but then it just, it's not happening on your timetable, so then you try to fix it yourself. Anybody ever done that? You try to fix it yourself. How's that work out for you? Usually not real, real good, right? But we're all prone to do it. We're all prone to try to manipulate life to work out just the way we think it should work out. And we want to do what we think God should have already done. And that's called living by dependence in self, on self, and not in trust, or not with trust in the one true God. So we're tempted to make matter, take matters in our own hands. Secondly, when we take matters in our, into our own hands, we are headed for disaster. We're headed for disaster. Look what happens in verse 5. We see that Sarai is jealous of Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you, and I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So there's jealousy here between uh, Sarai and Hagar. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He had a a mad wife, and he said, Whatever you need to do. And, and, And Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And so things just began to unravel. She, Hagar has a son. Sarai gets jealous. Sarai gets angry. She blames Abram. Abram says, well, listen, you just deal with it. And she runs uh, Hagar off and her son. And it's just a really ugly, uh, harsh situation. That's the outcome of doubt. Can I encourage you, and I'm preaching to Wade here tonight as well, can I encourage you not to take matters into your own hands? When you want to you know, fix something, when you want to see something happen that's not happening and, and you're getting impatient, keep, you know what you need to do? Keep on praying. Jesus taught us all throughout the Gospels that we ought to pray and not lose heart. We pray and we keep on praying. We ask and we keep on asking. We knock and we keep on knocking. Uh, God wants us to continually come to him with our needs instead of taking our lives into our own hands. We take matters in our own hands. We are headed for disaster. There's a, a remarkable story about Asa. He was a king in Judah and God gave, him, gave he and his army a great victory over, I think it was the Ethiopians, like a, there's like a million of them, and God gave them a great victory, and God gave them a great victory over another foreign army. But then, later on, after God gave them two great victories, they had another army marshal themselves against the nation of Judah. And so then, instead of going to God, Asa started trying to build alliances with other kings to deal with this threat. He took matters into his own hands. And pay for it dearly. God doesn't want us to take matters in our own hands. He wants us to go to Him. He wants us to call out to Him. He wants us to trust Him in the midst of difficult situations. So that's the outcome of doubt. When you try to take matters in your own hands, it gets you into all types of trouble. But third, we're going to spend the rest of our time here just talking about the antidote to doubt. You say, wait, I don't want to be doubtful. I don't want to... I don't want to Grow impatient and, 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 and do things I ought not to do. I don't want to live like that. How can I live with a, 
a, a strengthening faith, not a faith that is growing weaker? What is the antidote to doubt? Well, here it is. Remembering the faithfulness of God is the antidote to doubt and discouragement. Remembering the faithfulness of God is the antidote to doubt and discouragement. When you want to take matters into your own hands, it's time for you to remember just how faithful God is. And remember that He always comes through. You see, even though we are prone to faithlessness, God remains faithful. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says, even when we are faithless, God is faithful. God always does the right thing. God always comes through even when we uh, are prone to faithlessness. One of my favorite examples of this is found in Lamentations. Turn to Lamentations. It's an Old Testament book. comes right after the long book of Jeremiah. It was written by Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 3. Context here is interesting. God had judged his people with the Babylonians. They were in exile and captivity. And it was a dark, dark time in the history of God's people because he had judged them for turning their back on him. But look what, look what Jeremiah says. In the midst of his sorrow, that's what the book of Lamentations means. Lamentations means to lament, to, to be sorrowful. In the midst of his sorrow, look what he says about God. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your what? Faithfulness. That's where the the great hymn comes from. Great is your faithfulness, O God our Father. Then he says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Notice there, who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait. Notice that. Wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. And so everywhere that Jeremiah looks, he sees destruction, he sees darkness, he sees hopelessness, but he says, even in the midst of all this, I know God's faithful. And I'm looking for him to do something about all all of this sorrow going on around me. Now, if Abram would have had that same mindset, he could have avoided a lot of trouble right? I don't see the promise come to fulfillment, but God, I know you're faithful. I know you're good. You're my portion, so I will wait on you. Even though I can't see it, I know that you are faithful. I know that you are work. Uh, you are at work. I know that you will come through. But Abram didn't have that mindset. He was faithless. But even in the midst of this mess, God steps into the middle and does something wonderful. I love this story because of the way that God steps right into the middle of the dysfunction. If you look there in your notes, God brings care, compassion, mercy, reconciliation, and love to the situation. I mean, Sarai's mad. She runs Hagar and her son out of town, Abram's son, and there's dysfunction, and it's just really ugly, and it's the beginning of a conflict that, by the way, is still going on today. More about that in a little bit. But look what happens in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by, this is Hagar, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, 
Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. Now there's a different promise than the promise to Abraham about giving him a great nation because he was going to do that through a biological seed from Abram and Sarai. But even though this was Abram's son, this is a different promise. This is Hagar's son, not a biological son of Abram and Sarai. It's Abram and Hagar. But he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Laharoah. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now there's more to come about Ishmael and, and the family in the future and Sarah and all of that. There's more coming in the book of Genesis. But we see here that God intervenes and he shows compassion to Hagar. We don't know how willing of a participant she was in all of this, but she's in the middle of of Abram and Sarai's doubt and their faithlessness, and she's cast out, and God shows her great compassion. And God uh, reveals himself there to her and helps her in her time of need. He says, you will have a son by Abram. His name will be Ishmael, and I'm not going to turn my back on you. Your son Ishmael will have many descendants. Now, if you look there in your notes, even though God is faithful to forgive and to heal, which is what he's doing here, we're going to see some more in chapter 17, there are consequences for our unfaithfulness. It says there in verse 12, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. In other words, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac, Abram and Sarai's son, would not get along. And you know what? That conflict's still going on today. Have you notice what's going on in Middle East right now? West Bank, Gaza Strip. The, the, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, Palestinians. Uh, all, you know, the rockets being in the Iron Dome and all that happening over there right now goes all the way back thousands of years to Abram and Sarai's decision to take matters in their own hands. God's going to restore and God's going to help and God's going to still work in the midst of all this dysfunction, but there were consequences for their faithlessness. And we see it here in this chapter. When we go ahead of God, when we manipulate life, when we take matters in our own hands, we can get ourselves into a mess. And the decisions that we make today, hear this, listen to me, the decisions we make today can influence generations after us. The decision that Abram and Sarai made to try to have a son by Hagar, the maidservant, affected generations after generations after generations to this present day. Don't think that you make your decisions in a bubble and they only affect you. They affect your loved ones as well and those who will come after you. But even in the midst of all this, God is is at work. God is doing something. And we see his faithfulness in this passage, chapter 16, chapter 17. Now, there are several ways we see God's faithfulness. I want to show you these and we'll be through. 
First of all, we see God's faithfulness in his names. In his names. Look what it says in chapter 16, verse 13. God appears to Hagar, says, and by the way, there's some debate over whether this is a messenger from God, when it says the angel of the Lord, or whether this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, that's an entirely different sermon, uh, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. But, but there, there's debate over that. But we know this is God intersecting her life and God speaking to her and God comforting her and God letting her know that she was not alone. He was going to give her a son. He was going to preserve her life. But look what she says in chapter 16, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I've seen him who looks after me. So she calls God here when he says, truly you are a God of seeing. El Roah, El Roah, which means the God who sees. What it means. And Hagar recognizes that in the midst of this awful situation, God cares about her. God sees her plight. God has compassion on her. God cares about her. And so that name, El Roah, God sees, the Lord who sees, is a reminder of God's faithfulness. I, I want to encourage you. Listen to me carefully. I want to encourage you. When it feels like no one else cares about what's going on in your life, and you feel hopeless, and you feel alone, can I remind you that God sees? That God sees? As a matter of fact, turn back with me to Exodus Chapter 2, or turn forward with me. Exodus chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 23. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. We're fast forwarding. Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, found themselves through a, a, a long story, which we'll work our way through in Genesis. They found themselves in slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. It says in Exodus 2, verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God, listen, heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God, watch this, saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And the rest of the book is God doing something about it. God raising up Moses, sending Moses to say, let my people go, right? That's what Exodus is about. But don't you love that description? God hears their prayer. God knows what's going on. It says, God saw, God saw what was happening. And I can, I can say to you tonight on the authority of the word of God, no matter what you are going through, God sees and God cares. And God is faithful, and God is good, and God is powerful, and God is wise. You can trust Him, right? You can trust Him. So I love that name, El Roah, the God who sees. There's another name back in Genesis that I think speaks of God's faithfulness. Look back with me, Genesis chapter 17. Abram blew it, right? But God is going to keep working, okay? He's not through with Abram yet. Aren't you glad when you blow it, God's not through with you yet? You know how I know God's not through with you yet? Because you're alive. Amen? 
God's through with you, you'd be in eternity right now. God's not through with you yet. All right? Now, look what happens in chapter 17 of Genesis. When Abram was 99 years old, still hadn't had a son with Sarah, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, that phrase, God Almighty, in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. That, 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 that title for God, the name of God, El Shaddai, comes from a Hebrew word, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrew root word that means mountain. I love that. Mountain. God Almighty, El Shaddai, mountain. The idea that God is conveying through this name is that he is steadfast, immovable, steadfast in his purposes, steadfast in his promises, steadfast in his presence. He is steadfast, immovable. You can count on him. To stop God from fulfilling his purposes would be like trying to push Mount Everest over. Is that possible? No. What, 29,000 plus feet? This huge mountain. Can you go to Mount Everest and just push it over? No. And you can't stop God from what he's doing in the world. He is steadfast, immovable, all-powerful, almighty, El Shaddai. So that name reminds us of God's absolute faithfulness, that he will come through on his promises. God will do what he wants to do when he wants to do it, the way he wants to do it. So we see God's faithfulness in his names. And that's just in these two chapters. There are many other instances of the names of God revealed throughout the Bible. And I did a study on that, by the way, on a Wednesday night. When was that, last year we did names of God? Was that last year? And we went through a lot of them. So if you want to listen to that, you can call the church office and we can get you some copies of it. But we see God's faithfulness in his names. Also, we see God's faithfulness in the names that he gives. God here is going to name some folks. And there's a great message here in the names that God chooses. Who does God name? What names does he give? First of all, he names Abraham. Abraham. Look in verse 3 of Genesis 17. After God appears and says, I'm God Almighty, I'll make, you, I'll make my covenant between me and you and may, multi- and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant was, is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called what? Abraham. Now I can finally start calling him Abraham again. I've been trying to call him Abram consistently, but Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into uh, nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And so God is reminding him of those promises from Genesis chapter 12. And just to get the point across, he says, Abram, you're no longer Abram. Your name now is Abraham. And he changes his name to make a point. The, the name Abram means exalted father. Pretty cool name. The name Abraham means father of a multitude. So every time Abraham introduced himself, hi, I'm Abraham. Or any time someone said his name, Abraham, he was reminded of the promise of God. 
God here is reminding him of his faithfulness, that he's going to do something through his life. And he changes his name to make the point. God was getting ready to make Abraham the father of a great nation. A nation that would make God known to the other nations. A nation that would have the special designation of being God's chosen people. A nation that would experience the glory and the presence of God dwelling in their midst. A nation that would be the recipients of the word of God. A nation that would eventually produce the Messiah, the one who would bring hope and salvation to all people that place their faith in him. And he's reminding him here, your name is Abraham, father of a multitude. I'm going to fulfill my promise. And he changes his name. That's not the only name he changes. He changes also the name of Sarah. Sarah, look in chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. That's my original plan, Abraham, not Hagar, her. A biological son between you and your wife, her. And he said... I will bless her. She shall become nations, kings of people. Uh, people shall come from her. So he changes Sarai's name to Sarah. Now both names, Sarah and Sarah, uh, come from the word that means princess. But he changed her name. Just a way of saying, okay, both names mean princess, but the name changed. Just a reminder that I'm at work. Just a reminder that I'm going to do something. This name, her name means princess, is a fitting designation for the woman who would carry the seed from which the great nation of Israel would grow. What a special, exalted, privileged position. Now think about this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had the privilege of carrying in her womb God incarnate. Can you believe that? Pretty incredible. Now Mary was a sinner that needed a savior. And she would be saved by placing her faith in her son. But the son that was in her was not the biological offspring of her and her husband Joseph. She had a son in her conceived by the Holy Spirit. So the child that was in her was fully human, the offspring of Mary, and fully divine, fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. God taking on Human flesh. That's what God incarnate means. God taking on human flesh. That's who Jesus Christ is. Fully God, fully man. So Mary, think about this, was carrying Jesus, the fulfillment of the messianic promise made to Abraham, right? But think about this. Sarah carrying Isaac was the promise of the Messiah. So Mary carried the fulfillment of the Messiah Sarah got to carry the promise of the Messiah because through Isaac would come a great nation, through the nation would come Jesus Christ. She had a great privileged position. She was Princess Sarah. But then God names another person. He names Abram, Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac. Look what it says back in chapter 17, verse 17. God renews his covenant. I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. And look what happens in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. God made a promise. And what did Abraham do? What did he do? He laughed at God. It was so beyond 
Abraham's realm of comprehension at that point, I mean, sure, you know, a decade ago God made the promise, but we're even older now. And it was so beyond his realm of comprehension that he falls on his face and he laughs. And he says to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, we had another plan. It was a good plan. Other people do it. I mean, I know it's not my son with uh, Sarah, but it's my son. You can build a great nation and fulfill your promise to bless the peoples of the earth through him, can't you? It's our plan. Look what God says in verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name, what's it say there? Isaac. Now, his name means he laughs. Name Isaac just means laughter. That's what it means. He says, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Isaac, after he was born of Abraham and Sarah, and we'll get to that, was a visual reminder of the veracity of the promises of God. Every time they looked at Isaac, think about this, every time Abraham and Sarah looked at Isaac, they knew God was faithful, right? They said, okay. God tells the truth. <laughs> he always comes through. Every time they saw him, they had to remember God's faithfulness. But every time they said his name, they had an audible reminder of their own lack of faith. Laughter, come, come inside, it's time for dinner. Laughter, it's time for bed. Laughter this, laughter that. Every time they called his name Isaac, they were reminded that they laughed at the promises of God. And their, their weakness was held in contrast to God's power and God's faithfulness. And so God wanted to give them this reminder, you doubted me, but I always come through. Every time they would say his name, they would probably think to themselves, boy, was I crazy to doubt that God would come through. Never again am I going to doubt God. The one I laughed about is here eating at my table now. He, he called his name Isaac. God named Isaac. So we see God's faithfulness in his names, and we see God's faithfulness in the names that he gives, just reminding them that he's at work, reminding them of his plan, reminding them of his promises, reminding them of his covenant. Here's the the final thing I want you to see. We see God's faithfulness in his covenants. In his covenants. Now, look what happens back in verse 9 of chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Okay, God said, I'm making some promises to you. I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to give you a great nation of descendants. I'm going to give you land for your descendants to, to live in, and I'm going to bless the peoples of the earth through your descendants. Now, I expect you to be faithful to me and follow me and walk with me and believe me. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, a cutting away of the flesh. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. 
Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God said, I've made some great promises, Abram, and, or Abraham, and, and, and to make sure that you remember this covenant as a sign, I want you to practice among you and your male descendants the, the act of circumcision. And look what Abram, Abraham does in verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that very day. Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So God, uh, God tells Abraham what to do. Abraham does it. A visual reminder, a, a constant reminder that God had made a covenant with them. Now, if you look in your notes, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. A reminder of these promises that God had made to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis and reiterated over and over and over again. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But, this is where it gets good. Circumcision was was also a foreshadowing of the new covenant. A foreshadowing of the new covenant. God formed his people Israel. He gave them a law to abide by through which they would relate to him. But the law could not save anybody because no one could keep it to perfection, right? Everyone had a sin nature, and because of that sin nature, they rebelled against God. They, no one could keep the, the law, so no one could be saved by the law. So if anyone's ever going to be saved, God had to make a new covenant with humanity, a new agreement, if you will, that will provide salvation for us. And that's what Jesus is all about. Jesus came to this earth. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And if we place our faith in him, God has promised, new covenant, that he will forgive us of our sins and he'll transform our lives. That's the, that's the promise of the new covenant. The, the agreement God has with us through his son, Jesus Christ. And circumcision, way back in the Abrahamic covenant, was a foreshadowing of the new covenant. You say, wait, How? How's that foreshadow anything? Well, turn to Colossians 2 with me. Colossians 2, I want to show you this. We're winding down here, but let me just show you these few verses and we'll wrap up. Colossians 2, verse 11. I know those of you that were here for my sermon series on Colossians last year remember this, but this is just for everybody that wasn't here for that sermon series, all right? So, Colossians chapter... I'm kidding, I'm kidding, all right. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him also you were, in Christ, you were circumcised. It's okay, talk about circumcision. But look what he says. With a circumcision made without hands. So he's not talking about physical circumcision here. Look what he says. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, have forgiven us all our trespasses. Here's what he's saying. Listen. He's saying there was a time before you met Jesus Christ 
that your heart was uncircumcised. God had never done heart surgery on you. Your heart was wicked and desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Your heart led you astray. Your heart was filled with corruption and iniquity and evil. For you to have a transformed life, you needed heart surgery. Right? That's what you needed. You ever someone say, well, that's such a good heart. No, we don't have good hearts. We have wicked hearts, wicked hearts, depraved hearts. But when we met Christ, he says, just like baptism, you see someone buried under the water, put down under the water, your old self was cut away. Your old life, your old sin nature was, was rendered powerless. It was put into the grave. It was cut away by the Spirit of God so that you can live a new, transformed life with God renewing your brand new heart. Isn't that good? And so that, that physical Old Testament Abrahamic circumcision is a picture of the spiritual surgery that God does on our hearts when we meet Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's a foreshadowing. So wait, that, that's kind of, I don't know if that's that stretching a little bit. We'll turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 28. Romans 2 verse 28. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Now, he's using Jew here in the terms of related to God, uh, one of the people of God. So he's saying here, you're not one of God's people, not in terms of ethnic identity, but spiritual relationship. No one is one of God's people who is merely one outwardly. In other words, saying if all you are is ethnic in your identification with Judaism... You were born a Jew, you've been circumcised as a male and all of that. That's all you've got. That's the only qualification you bring to the table. That does not make you right with God. Look what he says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision, circumcision outward and physical. In other words, the circumcision God's concerned about in the New Testament is not the physical act of circumcision. Look what he says. A Jew, a child of God, if you will, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the what? The heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So again, as we think about Jesus Christ, we're saved not by any physical rights, not by any physical act of circumcision or ethnic identification or religious background. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ who does spiritual heart surgery in us to cut away the old person. Pretty cool, right? Say, so wait, I still don't know if I get it. Turn to Philippians 3. Two more passages and then I'll, I'll close this down. Philippians 3. If you're still with me on the home stretch, say amen. amen. All right, now look what it says, Philippians 3. Talking to a church in Philippi, all right? Macedonia, Greece. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And here's what's happening. Paul would go into predominantly Greek cities and he'd say, 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So he says in Philippi, so he said to the Philippian jailer over in Acts chapter 16, somewhere right in there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And so people placed their faith in Christ and were saved and churches were started. Then Paul would leave town and go to another city to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, after he left, some, some people with a Jewish background would come into town and say, hey, listen, I know that Paul told you all that stuff about Jesus and placed your faith in Jesus. And that's great, that's fine. But if you really want to be right with God, you've also got to be physically circumcised. And you've also got to keep the Sabbath the way it's prescribed in the Old Testament law. And you've got to keep the feasts and the festivals and the different ceremonies. And once you do all that stuff, then you'll be really right with God. So it's Jesus plus keeping of religious ritual that saves you. Well, Paul had gone on to another city. And he heard reports that these Judaizers were coming in and saying, hey... You're Greek and you'd say you believe Jesus, but you really need to be circumcised too. And it made Paul mad. So Paul wrote them to warn them about these people. Look what he says. Look out for the dogs, he calls them. The evildoers who mutilate the flesh. He says they're coming in to perform this physical act with no, no real purpose. It doesn't save you. Matter of fact, look what he says in the next verse. For we are the circumcision. We are. Here's what true circumcision is from God's perspective. Those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what it means to be circumcised spiritually. It means that you don't believe that you can earn your your salvation. You're only saved by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You've placed your faith in Christ. You glory in Him. You put no confidence in religious ritual. No confidence in keeping the Sabbath. No confidence in tithing. No confidence in festivals. No confidence in circumcision. All your confidence is found in Christ and His finished work. That's what true circumcision is. When God does spiritual surgery, when you place your faith in Christ... He changes you. He transforms you. He forgives you. He's your only hope. Now, to kind of drive the final, final nail home, turn to Acts 7 very quickly. Acts 7, verse 51. Now, when I was studying, I said I wasn't going to go through all these verses, but they're just too good not to go through. Now, look at Acts 7, verse 51. Context here. Stephen is preaching a message, and he's preaching to a predominantly Jewish audience that... Uh, It's filled with religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, and he's preaching about Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. uh, For the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, uh, hated Jesus Christ, were threatened by his influence among the people, and so they were behind having him crucified. And Stephen here is preaching a great sermon, but is making folks bad, okay? Now, so Stephen's preaching, and... He's surrounded by Jewish religious leaders, Jewish people who are depending upon their adherence to the law to save them, even though the law can save no one, right? And look what he says to them in Acts 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised. Now, we know these folks were circumcised, the the Jewish religious leaders, the males, because they, they kept the letter of the law. But he's not talking about physical circumcision. Look what he says uncircumcised in heart and ears. 
You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He's saying you think your physical circumcision can save you, but you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You need Jesus. You need internal change. You need forgiveness of sins. That's only found in Christ. And they got so mad when he preached that message. You know what they did? They stoned him. Stephen was the first martyr in the New Testament. They stoned him for preaching this message of salvation that's found in Christ alone, not by religious ritual. So, going back to Genesis. I know we got way off, but going back to Genesis, circumcision was a foreshadowing of the new covenant. All right? Of the spiritual surgery God's going to do to his people who place their faith in Christ. Because that's the new covenant. Forgiveness of sins and inner transformation. Now, last thing. God wants us to remember that he keeps his promises. He's a covenant God. Just like he kept his covenant to Abraham, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God keeps his covenant to us. He keeps his new covenant. He saves those who place their faith in Christ. God made a promise, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not what? Perish, but have what? Everlasting life. That's a promise of God. God keeps his promise. So wait, well, sometimes I doubt. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you relying upon the finished work of Christ instead of relying on your own works? Do you believe that Jesus alone saves you? If you place your faith in Christ, he saved you. It's a it's done, it's finished, you're secure in him. Romans 10 verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10 9, if we, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God had raised him from the dead, we will be saved, right? Promises. And God always keeps his promises. Wait, why are you going to heaven? Can I tell you this? I'm not going to heaven because I've earned it. I'm not going to heaven because I deserve it. I'm not going to heaven because I've done enough good things to outweigh my bad things, and God's just going to kind of, you know, wink at my sin and usher me in. That's not why I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven because at nine years of age, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ alone to save me. I knew I was a sinner, I knew I needed a Savior. And I called on his name. And based upon the promises of the word of God, he saved me. And he's given me assurance by not only forgiving me my sins in that moment, but by changing my life. God has constantly been changing me from nine years old until 38 years old. God has been changing me. He's always at work in me. He's doing spiritual surgery in my heart. The old weight is dead. I'm a brand new person in Christ. Amen? That's why I'm going to heaven. Because what Jesus did for me, the finished work of Christ, that's the only reason I'm going to heaven. And if you're going to heaven, that's the only reason you're going to heaven. Because of what Jesus did for you. And God being faithful to his covenant. God being faithful to his promise. When you get a chance... Read, well, let's we'll close Hebrews 8. Let's just read this. Too good not to read. Hebrews 8, we're going we're to read this and close. Just to remind you of the promises of the new covenant. He quotes here from Jeremiah, writer of Hebrews. What it says in Hebrews chapter 8, 
Verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Talking about the, the, the law, the, the Mosaic covenant, if you will. For they did not continue in my covenant. They were not faithful. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I, I judge them. I turned my back on them. But I wasn't through providing salvation. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their what? Hearts. He's going to do heart surgery. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. He's going to change people. He's going to transform them. And look at verse 12, as if that's not good enough. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So what are the promises of the new covenant? Complete, final, full forgiveness and a transformed life. Amen? That's what the new covenant is. And God promised it, promised it to everyone who places their faith in Christ alone. And God always keeps his promises.